Hi, I'm Jules van Binsberg and a finance professor at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. And I'm Jonathan Burke, a finance professor at the Graduate School of Business at Stanford University. And this is the All Else Equal podcast. Welcome back, everybody. Today, we thought we'd talk about the unions. And the reason we thought about that was what's going on in Detroit right now. I was sufficiently interested in this question that I basically turned around to Jules and said, Jules, what do you think is going on in Detroit? There's huge competitive pressure right now in the car market. And that competitive pressure is not just nationally there, say, from Tesla, but it's also a huge international competition where lots of foreign car makers are really into the electric car revolution and are fiercely competing with American car makers. And so suppose that now the wages of the workers in Detroit are being raised, that must have, and we're back to the title of our show, effects in equilibrium. Holding all else equal, the workers will be better off. But can we hold all else equal? I definitely don't think we can. I mean, the idea that back, whatever it was, 70 years ago, when there were just three people making cars, and you could raise prices, and that was it. As long as all three manufacturers raised prices, that's all consumers could deal with, are long gone. And the pressure today is intense. Even within the United States, the pressure on Tesla has been... I would say seismic. So given that fact, you really wonder, so sure the unions will extract a pay increase, but what does that do to the long-term wages of workers in Detroit? So the first thing we need to establish is if the workers get higher wages, where does that come from? And so I think there's a bunch of groups that could potentially be paying for these higher wages. The first group is Maybe the executives and the shareholders at these car manufacturers will get less. And so it's at their expense that these higher wages can be paid for. But of course, there's a second possibility, which is that in the end, consumers will have to pay for this, meaning that prices for the cars will have to go up. Although I think it's going to be very difficult to raise car prices by a lot, exactly because of the competitive arguments that we just discussed. You cannot just make these cars 30% more expensive or 20% more expensive and then still sell the same number of them. I think it's unlikely that their consumers are going to pay in this case because the market is so competitive. And so then the question is, who pays? And ultimately, it's hard to see anything else other than the size of the organization shrinks to take into account the lower competitiveness. You know, you say executives get paid less. There's a pretty intense market out there for top executives. If you pay less, you may not get the same quality. And that, again, will lead to a smaller car market in Detroit. So, you know, I don't know about the long-term consequences of the strike is, but it doesn't seem good from my perspective. And I think one of the things I'd like to talk about on the show is what is actually the evidence? How have unions affected wages historically? And we have a very accomplished guest who's going to talk to us about that. But before we introduce the guest, I think it's worth the two of us just going over why it's difficult to answer this question. So one key question that we would like to have an answer to is, what is the effect of unions on the wages of their members? And so one easy thing to compute is to just take the average of the wages of workers in unions and compare them to the average wages of workers not in unions. 
But unfortunately, the difference in these two average wages is not going to give a careful answer to the question of what is the causal effect that unions have on the wages of their workers. And one reason for why it's not going to give us a careful answer is that there are so-called selection effects. It is not the case that workers are randomly distributed between unions and non-unions, and therefore we can simply compare two otherwise identical workers and compare their wages. There are selection effects in the sense that certain types of workers are more likely to join unions than other types of workers. Certain types of industries are more likely to be unionized than other types of industries. And so we need a much more careful research designed to nail this causal question. Larry Katz is our guest today, and he's an expert in this area, and he's going to help us to carefully answer these causal questions. Larry Katz is the Elizabeth Allison Professor of Economics at Harvard University. He's also been an editor at the Quarterly Journal of Economics, and his main area of expertise is labor economics and the economics of social problems. And for that reason, I don't think we could have had a better guest to discuss this topic with. Thank you so much for being with us today, Larry. I'm delighted to be here. Great. So the topic of today's episode is on unions and particularly the effects of unions of the equilibrium in the labor market. And we have quite strong laws against companies colluding with each other in the marketplace. And so if we would just translate that to the labor market, isn't it interesting that we allow workers to collude in the marketplace for labor? So what could motivate that? Well, first of all, we haven't always. In fact, there was a time in which antitrust laws did apply to unions. The Sherman Antitrust Act in the first several decades after it was passed in the 1880s was applied to unions. There was the famous Danbury Hatter's Supreme Court case in which unions were found to be illegal, collusive monopolies of labor sellers. And that was changed in 1914 in the Clayton Antitrust Law, which gave an exemption to unions and which argued that labor isn't a commodity and is different and that collective bargaining and peaceful union activities should not be considered collusions in the restraint of trade. So that's the current setting we're in. I think the economic justification would be that, in fact, there's a large asymmetry in power between employers and employees in many labor markets, and that employers have substantial labor market power. There's a lot of evidence that they, it's a, you know, monopsony or oligopsony power and that, you know, a union workers acting collectively might be a way to offset that. It could have both valuable distributional aspects and there also could be some improvements in labor market efficiency, the extent that they offset monopsony power of employers. That's a tougher one to empirically assess. But there are also, you know, I would say, some other aspects of unions. They aren't just monopolist in the sense of raising wages. They also have a role that my colleagues, you know, Richard Freeman and Jim Medoff called the union voice effect that a lot of things that happen in the workplace are essentially collective goods. There's a lot of distrust between employers and workers. Workers afraid that if they give their true preferences or they point out a way of doing a job better, that they're going to be out of work or it's going to be used against them. And having a bargaining agent may facilitate actually better provision of whether it's workplace amenities, benefits, or could even improve productivity. And then there's 
A third role, unions don't just collectively bargain. They also provide voice for workers in the political sphere, which a lot of people think are an important part of democracy. So, Larry, let me push back a little bit on that. And in the following sense, Google isn't unionized, right? There is an attempt by some Google workers right now to become unionized, but is not currently unionized. Do you think there's a cause and effect there? Do you think the reason Google is so successful is in part because, you know, you talk about the asymmetry of the labor market, and I'm not sure that the people trying to employ workers at Google would agree with you that they see that asymmetry, right? They would say that it's damn hard for them to hire good people. So I would say that there's a lot of heterogeneity among workers, and certain workers don't have the right to unionize. For example, managers, for the most part, do not. A lot of professional workers do not have managerial roles in our current labor law. And the way I would think of it is that there are certain workers with very marketable skills in which they you know, have a thick market, top-notch programmers, software engineers, and probably a union isn't that important. Although there was a substantial conspiracy for a long period of time between Apple, Google, and others to not poach each other's workers and to keep wages down. And there was an antitrust suit against them in which there was a settlement in which it does appear. And, and after that suit, one did see an increase in wages for a pretty talented group of workers. So it does appear, you know, and there were smoking guns in that case of Steve Jobs sending emails to Eric Schmidt telling him to, you know, not poach our workers that suggested deviation, you know, that we would think in product markets look like smoking gun evidence of sort of collusion and monopoly power. But the way I think of it is workers who have sort of a really good outside market or they have what we call position-specific skills that are really difficult to replace have a lot of bargaining power and probably don't need a union. But a lot of workers who don't have that sort of thing, you know, and where there are a lot of frictions in the labor market, unions could play a role in helping them bargain and may not be that inefficient. But there is also an important monopoly face of unions, and there is evidence that when unions raise wages and compensation, that employers do cut back on employment. Plants do get shut down, particularly multi-establishment you know, employers switch work from the unionized to the non-union ones. There's a big issue of the evidence is highly variable on whether the productivity and voice effects of the union offset their sort of monopoly side. They have both, and it's really contextual, I think. So in the raw data, it looks like there's less of an effect for more educated, highly skilled workers and a really big effect for unionizing less educated. But as I noted, there's a big difference in selection in the cross-section. And when you try to look longitudinally, the effects look similar, but I would still say the evidence looks stronger that when you have successful unionization for, say, high school graduates, it tends to have a bigger impact than for college graduates. But there are clearly some very strong unions, think about professional athletes, airline pilots, that seem to have had very powerful effects on compensation as large as anything we have seen, that they have been able to get a lot of collective power. And in some sense, it isn't that LeBron James does better because, you know, the NBA has a union, but the bench players do really well. In some sense, a lot of the power of unions and sort of sectors for highly talented is they're leveraging both the 
incredible market power of the talents to the, you know, the value of the NBA would fall. A lot of stars didn't play and they sort of, you know, unions tend to compress wages. So LeBron James would do fine regardless of having a union, but you know, a reserve center on the Lakers does much better with the collective bargaining agreement. And that seems to be some of the distributional. So there's a much more compression of wages in unionized environments than in the absence of unions. You're saying compression, but you make it sound like it's mainly the bottom that is pulled up, not the top that's being pulled down. Is there some evidence that there's at least some redistribution of wages going on? The total share of revenue that went to workers when you see unionization happen, say in baseball and basketball, went up a lot. So the biggest redistribution was from the employers, which is why the market value of employers falls a ton when they get unionized from shareholders and others rather than from other workers. You know, it's hard to know the counterfactual. I suspect that the salaries for Michael Jordan's and LeBron James are probably a bit lower because of salary caps and because, you know, of maximums in there. So the things that unions have done in combination with them in the absence, but there's more evidence that, in fact, some of the losers of unionization are high-wage workers outside the bargaining unit. So top managers. So there's a lot of evidence that when unions come in, one of the big losers, one of the people who really battle against unions are not just shareholders, but, you know, compensation for managers. So there's some redistribution from the higher wage non-union workers in a firm towards the unionized employees. You know, Larry, professional sports is always a very good place to study because it's so transparent. So let's talk about the pie. Clearly, obviously, the pie has grown. But there was a time when, basically, before the players' unions got strong, when professional sports were just not as expensive as they are today. So the bargaining power of the union obviously increased the pie a tremendous amount, and it's also increased the overall pie. No question about it. I think sports like basketball are much bigger today than they were before. But by the same token, some of that money came from consumers, Oh, yeah. So part of this is not just the prices go up. You know, we see the same thing with minimum wages. So there are sort of two cases. It could be it's all redistribution from the shareholders and from higher level managers. But a lot of it is, you know, raising the cost and increasing sort of prices. You certainly see that consumers pay for part of this. So there is a broader redistribution going on there. Which brings us back to the original question, which is, it's interesting that if you think of us consumers and producers, that we allow the workers to essentially collude and therefore increase prices and maybe rents to producers. We have minimum wages also because we think workers don't have a lot of bargaining power. That also, there's a lot of evidence that raising the minimum wage raises the price of goods produced by minimum wage workers. But the question is, if you think about redistribution, there's almost no non-distortionary way of redistributing income. Raising taxes and having transfer payments also lead to a lot of distortions. And it's not totally obvious that people who care a lot about sort of sports and entertainment, paying more is a worse way of redistributing than sort of taxing everyone to pay for it. Oh, yeah, no, I agree with that. Now, let's bring this back to the current labor dispute, which is going on in Detroit. Now, obviously, back in the day when there were three automakers and they controlled the market, the ability of the union 
to extract some of the surplus from consumers was a lot more powerful than it is today, right? So, I mean, when I look at that labor dispute, I just look at it and say, I don't know what the unions are thinking. Given the intense competition that the American car manufacturers are facing and their seeming inability to respond very well, I'm not sure that this is going to result in a bigger pie. What do you think? And to add one more thing to that, right, it does seem that unions are losing members fast. If you look, for example, at the auto worker unions, just in the last decades, they've lost hundreds of thousands of members. So there are these two trends going on at the same time. So the question is, what are your thoughts on this? Well, unions have been declining in their membership in the U.S. since the mid-20th century. So in the 1950s, you know, in the low 30s percentage of workers were unionized. Today, it's 10%. In the private sector, it's 6%. And part of the decline in unions in the private sector has been shrinking of, say, the manufacturing sector, which was a big part. But within every sector, like within autos, there has been a big decline with much less success at organizing workers and a big growth in the non-union sector, and obviously international competition. For unions to be successful, they typically need to either have employers who have a lot of market power so they can pass on the cost and not shrink and not have a lot of competition, which was true in the mid-20th century for U.S. auto workers who were dominant in the world market. But a couple things happened. One, international competition is very important in the auto industry. And an early thing is unions early on organized at sort of the local product market level, and then firms who could expand nationally as transportation networks with railroads and trucks and roads were able to get what we call the whipsaw advantage because they could shift production to other sites if you were only unionized ones. That was sort of the rise of the national trade union. But international competition has made it much more difficult for unions because it's really tough to have a union between U.S. and Chinese workers or Japanese workers. And other than U.S. and Canada having some coordination historically of the same union, it's been a big, you know, even within Europe, they have not been successful at having cross-national unions. So, yes, the wage premium of auto workers declined dramatically in the last 40 years as competition has grown internationally and domestically, uh, the ability to move to right-to-work states with less unionization. And so you see there was a much smaller general wage premium to manufacturing than there used to be in the auto workers. The question is not whether the auto workers are probably going to go back to how dominant they were in 1950, but whether they have fallen so much that there is some wiggle room where they can probably push up wages in this agreement. I suspect this agreement will be a larger wage increase for them than in recent years because we've been seeing that for other strong unions recently. I think, you know, it's going to put the auto companies in a bit of a pickle. And their big issue is trying to not have to have that same sort of contract covering the new sort of electronic vehicles where they have to compete with Tesla, which is not unionized. The union's hope is to spread it there and then use that to try to organize Tesla but that also raises the question of the international competition, which is also why, not surprisingly, unions are highly supportive of U.S. content rules with respect to production and you know, are very concerned with trade policy as well. But I think the big question in the long haul 
for the union. Is this going to be a one-time hurrah where they get the non-electronic vehicle wages up and it's going to then be a shrinking sector as we shift towards electronic vehicles? Or will they be successful and will that help them organize this broader growing part of the sector? And I'm skeptical of that, but we'll have to see. Well, so one thing that I thought was interesting in the way that people reported about the strike was that it wasn't just a negotiation about the wages. It was also a negotiation about the job security. And one argument that indeed was used was that for electric vehicles, fewer workers would be necessary to make the product and that therefore the job security was under pressure and therefore they wanted to negotiate bigger job security deals. But now, of course, we can still translate that into an effective wage change anyway and still talk about wage premium. But it seems a weird thing to negotiate about in terms of this competitive pressure that's there. That's not going to go anywhere, that competitive pressure. Yeah. The union would argue that if there was so much of a need to be investing and this was affecting all this productive investment that the auto companies should be doing, why are they doing so many stock buybacks rather than investing in building this electric vehicle capacity? That would be their sort of argument that they are sort of doing well and they're not cutting off these other investments. But I think it's clearly the U.S. auto workers not just with wages, but their benefits and health, retiree health benefit plans have had huge legacy costs that has been worked out over the last decade that's gotten them in much better shape. And clearly they're motivated to not end up with the sort of additional costs because there are many more retired auto workers than active auto workers. This one, I think, is much more about the auto workers trying to do it for their existing members. A lot of past deals did a lot for their sort of retired members where those were costs without getting anything out of the workers. So we'll see how hard strikes are disruptive. Is this for three years, could you pay more and then be shifting investment? And is it worthwhile to offer some job security? It's an interesting calculation for the auto companies and, you know, and the union. We'll see how strong they will hold out on it. But I think I don't have a crystal ball. I've mediated a lot of labor disputes. I've not been involved in one in the auto industry. So I don't, I don't know more than I read in the newspaper on this one. Gary, just as a last closing thing, one of the things which I think is interesting to think about is the conflicts of interest within the union. We've already spoken about one, which is old workers versus new workers. But to what extent are some workers helped at the expense of other workers. I always think about listed pilot is a huge success. Sure, but if an airline goes bankrupt and you're a senior pilot at one airline, you are completely screwed because you have to start as a junior pilot at another airline and there's nothing anybody could do about it. So talk about those conflicts of interests. So unions are political organizations and they need to build coalitions. So the one thing that a well-functioning union leadership does is it's in great communication with its employees and it tries to, in bringing its negotiating demands, and many of them are dysfunctional, and the UAW had a, until its new leadership, a pretty corrupt leadership that you know, seemed to be skimming a lot of things and not doing well for their members. And it's a complicated in a situation like the UAW where there are also a lot of retired members who they care about, although they're not voting in the sort of current contract. And the way I think of it is there tend to be pressures towards helping out the least economically advantaged members. That tends to be a norm 
you know, within unions, but you also need to get the more senior workers who are often the biggest part of the union to vote for the agreement. And that's always been the tension in them. You know, my dissertation advisor, Hank Farber's dissertation was all about, you ought to see something looking like a median voter model of unions. And that actually worked pretty well if you looked across United Mine Worker unions. But there's also this issue, which we call the Cheshire Cat Union problem, which is essentially, you know, and this was actually the policy of the United Mine Workers for many years under John L. Lewis, their leader, which is... Let's just jack up wages and eventually this industry will shrink because no one should be a coal miner. It's a terrible job. But, you know, in the end, the union's just a smile because we have a small number of members left who do really, really well. But we're basically cutting off future workers. That's always been a tension in unions that existing members want to get the most. You know, the two tier wages were a way of sort of trying to do well for the existing members and give employers incentives to hire new members. That's one of the things the auto workers are trying to eliminate now because the younger group wants to sort of bring themselves up. But there's no perfect answer. And again, one view of labor economists has been something looking like a median voter model is a right model for thinking about it. Another view is this was known as the Ross Dunlop debate in labor economics is you need to study each union's particular to understand the dynamics of who the powerful members are and who will vote for them. And both clearly are reasonable approaches. This was great. Thank you so much, Larry. It was great to have you on. Thank you, Larry. That was really, I think, a great insight into the current debate of what's going on in Detroit. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the All Else Equal podcast. Please leave us a review at Apple Podcast. We'd love to hear from our listeners. And be sure to catch our next episode by subscribing or following our show wherever you listen to your podcast. For more information and episodes, visit allelseequalpodcast.com or follow us on LinkedIn. The All Else Equal podcast is a production of Stanford University's Graduate School of Business and is produced by University FM.